This afternoon we deal with uh, one of the Lord's Days that captures the heart of the Reformed faith, speaks about our justification, about how we are right with God. Let's read together Lord's Day 23. But what does it help you now that you believe all this? In Christ, I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I've grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that you're righteous only by faith? Not that I'm acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith. For only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the most important thing in your life? To what do you devote your time and your energy? What do you live for? When we look around us, we see how people in our society answer this question. Some devote their lives to noble causes, finding a cure for cancer or ways to lessen the spread of malaria. Some make it their life mission to feed the hungry or help the downtrodden or those stuck in life. Some get involved in helping children be left orphaned in third world countries. Yet many are much more selfish in their orientation in life. Some obsess about sports, devoting most of their free time to playing various sports or watching their favorite teams. Some focus their lives on the satisfaction they get from living a party lifestyle. Some strive for their own happiness and comfort by working hard so that they can enjoy the material benefits of life. Please note that while the focus of such people is on different things, it's ultimately directed toward their own satisfaction. Many around us think that They are gods, that they have the right to a prosperous, healthy, happy life. The Bible teaches that those who seek their satisfaction in such things are lost in their sins, that they are alienated from God, worthy of condemnation. Why? Because they're seeking their life in themselves and in the things of this world. You will never find true satisfaction outside of Jesus Christ. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
true joy and peace cannot be found in the passing pleasures that this world has to offer. They're only found in a relationship with God made possible through Jesus Christ. There's nothing more important in life than being right with God and heir to life everlasting. And so this afternoon we'll focus our attention on how God grants righteousness and life to his people. We'll focus on Jesus Christ and his righteousness and on how we may share in it. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. God grants righteousness and life to all who believe that Jesus is Lord. These gifts are given by grace alone and they are received by faith alone. For the past months, we've been dealing with the various articles of the Apostles' Creed, with what we, along with the Church of All Ages, profess to believe, with the articles of our Catholic, undoubted Christian faith. We sang them together earlier this service. These articles are focused on our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, on the wondrous works that they have done and continue to do for us. Last week, we concluded our study of the Apostles' Creed with what we believe about the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Lord's Day 23 goes on to ask a so what question. You confess all these things, you believe them, so what? How does that benefit you? To use the words of the Catechism, but what does it help you now that you believe all this? The answer that the Catechism gives is profound. It's important. Believing what it says in the Apostles' Creed brings great benefits. Our Catechism says, In Christ I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. There you have the gospel message in one line. It speaks of being right with God and of having everlasting life, benefits that are ours only in Christ Jesus, our Savior. One of the most important questions we face in life is, how can we be made right with God? It's a question that many in our society don't give much consideration. Either they don't care about God Or else they presume that because they're decent people, God will accept them as they are. This question about how we are made right with God is also one that we growing up in the Christian church need to consider carefully. The fact that you're born in a Christian family or attend a Christian church does not make you right with God. We need to understand, what we need to understand is that just like all the people of the world, we also are sinful people. Day in and day out, we sin in thought, in word, and deed. Our sins grieve God. They make God angry. Our sins separate us from God. They put a blockage in our relationship. We may not always realize how offensive our sins are to God, 
how much we deserve to come under his judgment. Yet there are times when each of us can feel incredibly guilty, for we know we've broken God's commandments, that we deserve to come under his condemnation. How do we know that we have sinned, that our sins make us worthy of condemnation? God's law makes clear how he wants us to live for him. That law is written on our hearts. When we break it, our conscience accuses us. Our catechism says, My conscience accuses me that I've grievously sinned against all God's commandments, I've never kept any of them, and I'm still inclined to all evil. Our conscience is a voice that speaks in our hearts and minds. It tells us the difference between right and wrong. It judges our actions, our words, our thoughts, our feelings. At times our conscience warns us not to do something that we're thinking about doing because it's wrong. It also accuses us. It convicts us when we have done wrong. Our conscience not only addresses personal sin in our lives, when it accuses us of our sins, it also brings into question our standing before God. We know our sins grieve and anger God. We know God hates our sins, that God said he would punish them. So the question that arises is this. What is our standing before God? In light of all our sins, how does God view us? What our catechism makes clear is that because of our sins, we deserve to come under God's condemnation. That unless our sins are paid for, we're not right with God. So how are we made right with God? Our catechism asks that question in question 60. It asks, how are you righteous before God? Most people would answer this question in one of two ways. Many think that we can make ourselves right with God. That we can do enough good things to please God so that he'll overlook our sins. But that's not the answer that the Bible teaches. It says that we need to seek our righteousness in Christ and in his redeeming work. Paul outlines these two different pathways in our reading from Romans 10. Note how he begins the chapter. He writes, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that's for the Israelites, is that they may be saved. Paul's focus in this chapter is on how people can be saved. The Jews thought that they could earn salvation by their own good deeds. Paul acknowledges that they were extremely zealous for God. He would know, for before he confessed Christ, Paul also sought his salvation in legalistic righteousness. Paul explains that God's people Israel did not know the righteousness from God. They sought to establish their own righteousness. Paul explains this in Romans 10 verse 5. He writes, for Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Anyone who can abide by the law of God 
perfectly will find favor with God. The problem is that as sinful human beings, none of us can meet this standard. We cannot earn righteousness. We can never be made right with God by our good works. Because even the best of our good works are all defiled by sin. The Jewish leaders in Jesus' day put heavy burdens on God's people Israel. They expected them to live according to the law of Moses. They taught that outward conformity to the law was the way to be accepted by God. It was an impossible load for the people to bear. It's no wonder that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus called out to them, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Paul received this rest. He experienced God's grace in Christ on the road to Damascus. He understood that there's only one way to be made right with God. In Romans 10.6, he calls this the righteousness based on faith. We receive this righteousness by believing in Jesus Christ and his mighty work of salvation. In Romans 10, verses 6 and 7, Paul goes on to refer to some words from Deuteronomy 30, which Moses spoke to the people after speaking curses on the disobedient and blessings on the obedient. Paul says, But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is, bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? Paul's point is, we don't have to earn God's favor through good works. He freely offers it in Christ. God does not demand the impossible from us. We don't have to bring Christ down from heaven or to raise him up from the dead. Christ voluntarily came down from heaven to suffer and to die for our sins. It's by the power of God that he was raised from the dead and glorified. The hard work to accomplish salvation has all been done by him. Paul's point is that the righteousness of faith does not require us to be supermen. It does not set some impossible task before us. God has done what was necessary to secure our salvation. We received his gift of righteousness by faith. Paul makes the point of his whole argument explicit in verse 9. There it clearly describes how we are saved. He says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. So the way of salvation is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, beloved, this is the teaching of the whole Bible. Paul quotes two more texts to prove the need for faith in order to be saved. He quotes from Isaiah 28 verse 16 saying, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. He quotes from Joel 2.32 saying, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Our catechism makes exactly this point in answering the question, How are you righteous before God? 
The answer is very simple. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. We can't earn our righteousness, beloved. We ourselves cannot do anything to make us right with God. God grants righteousness and life to all who believe in Jesus Christ. Our catechism says that God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants the benefits of Christ's work to all who believe in him as their Savior and Lord. He credits Christ's substitutionary death on the cross to us. This is the gospel of God's free grace. Grace is a gift, an undeserved gift. Some have turned the word grace into an acronym The G stands for God's, the R for righteousness, the A for at, the C for Christ's, the E for expense. Grace is God's righteousness at Christ's expense. And so the result is that when God looks at all who believe in Jesus Christ, he doesn't see wretched sinners In Christ, God considers us righteous. That means not guilty of any sins. He considers us holy. That means set apart for service to him. In God's sight, it is as if we never had nor committed any sin. As if we had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for us. God grants righteousness and life to all who believe in Jesus Christ. These gifts are given by grace alone. Brings us to our second point, and it will see that these gifts are received by faith alone. The emphasis on Lord's Day, the emphasis of Lord's Day 23 is on how we share in God's gifts of grace. That it is by faith alone that Christ's righteousness and everlasting life are given to us. Question 60 asks, how are you righteous before God? The answer begins with only by true faith in Jesus Christ. It ends by making it clear that God grants Christ's righteousness only if I accept this gift with a believing heart. To have faith is the same as to believe. There is content to our faith. We need to believe the gospel message. It's clear from our reading from Acts 16. Paul describes, it describes part of Paul's second missionary journey. One of the places where he brought the gospel was to Philippi, a Roman penal colony. Within this leading city of the district of Macedonia, there was a prison that held those who had been convicted of wrongdoing by the Roman government. While Paul and Silas were at Philippi, a slave girl began to follow them. She was possessed by an evil spirit. The Greek text refers to it as a spirit of python. The python was a large dragon in Greek mythology who guarded the oracle of the Greek god Apollo at Delphi. 
The priestesses of this God were said to have the ability to predict the future. Our text tells us that this slave girl was able to predict the future, that she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This slave girl began to follow Paul and Silas around one day. She did so shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. The statement that this slave girl made was absolutely true. The evil spirit in her recognized Paul and Silas as servants of Jesus Christ and knew that he had come into the world to bring salvation to all who believe in him. Yet while speaking the truth, this evil spirit was bringing the gospel message into disrepute. Within Greek society, there were different kinds of messages being promoted. Wisdom was something sought after. So it was common for philosophers and wise men to travel from place to place, trying to persuade others of their teaching. The message that Paul and his fellow workers preached was being brought into disrepute by association with this slave girl. She kept following them around the city, calling out that they were servants of the Most High God, who were proclaiming the way of salvation. She was hijacking their message and presenting it as another weird phenomenon of the day. The slave girl's condition reminds us that it is possible to know the truth without experiencing its saving power. By the evil spirit working in her, this girl said that Paul and Silas were proclaiming the way to be saved. But she herself did not share in the riches of the gospel. She was in bondage to an evil spirit. She was being used by cruel masters to earn them a lot of money. The girl's true words masked the lost state of her soul. While demon-possessed, she could not believe the truth that Jesus died on the cross to pay for her sins. The evil spirit within her prevented her from receiving Christ's righteousness with a believing heart. Paul was troubled by this slave girl's condition. He recognized that she was demon-possessed. In compassion for her, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. The result was astounding. It came out of her that very hour. Why? Because of the power and might of our ascended Lord Jesus Christ. He's at the right hand of God. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. It was in the name of Jesus Christ that Paul exercised the demon from this girl. Since all the evil spirits are subject to the king of the universe, this spirit left her. Paul's action had some unintended consequences. The slave girl's masters lost their source of income because without the evil spirit, this girl was no longer able to predict the future. They dragged Paul and Silas in front of the authorities. They brought false charges against them, stating that they were advocating customs unlawful for Romans to accept or practice. Paul and Silas were stripped and beaten. Their beating was a severe flogging. Then they were thrown into prison with the command that they be guarded carefully. The jailer put them into the inner cell. He fastened their feet in the stocks. Despite their hardships, Paul and Silas were not discouraged. They recognized 
They were involved in a battle between opposing spiritual forces. They were pleased that Christ counted them worthy of suffering for his name's sake. In prison, they were praying and they were singing hymns to God while the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. God sent this earthquake to free his servants from jail to allow them to continue to preach the gospel. The jailer awoke. He saw the prison doors open. He was about to kill himself because he thought all the prisoners had escaped. His heart was gripped with terror because he knew what happened to jailers who allowed their prisoners to escape. He would be made into an example. It's likely he'd be flogged. And in the end, he would be killed in the place of the prisoners who had escaped. Fearing punishment, the jailer was about to commit suicide. To him, death seemed to be the only way of escape. That would be true if death was the end of life. If there was no God, no eternity, no judgment to come. The jailer was more afraid of the punishment of the Roman authorities than he was of appearing before the judgment seat of God. He was more afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul than of the Lord who can destroy both body and soul in hell. To escape the misery of the present hour, this jailer is about to rush unprepared into the presence of the judge of all the earth. He was a man without hope because he was Without God, unconverted, about to plunge himself into hell. But Paul stopped him. He shouted, do not harm yourself. We're all here. He said the only words that could convince the jailer not to commit suicide. He gave him hope that perhaps not all was lost. The jailer called for lights and investigated Paul's claim that all the prisoners were still present. When he confirmed it was true, he fell trembling before Silas and Paul. He recognized something remarkable was happening. The jailer recognized that supernatural powers were at work. Earthquakes don't normally open prison doors and cause prisoners' chains to come loose. Earthquakes normally bury prisoners under rubble. What do you think normally happens when prison doors fly open? One of the things prisoners dream about more than anything else is freedom. Given a chance to escape, most will run for their lives. And so the jailer asked Paul and Silas the most important question a person can ever ask. Sirs, What must I do to be saved? Paul responded, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Note the contrast between the jailer's question and Paul's answer. The jailer asked, What can I do to be saved? He was looking to do something. He was willing to change his ways, to be better in the future, to clean up his life. He would listen to Paul's God. 
He just wanted to be told what to do. Paul doesn't tell him to do anything. There's nothing he can do to merit salvation. Instead, Paul tells him to believe in a person, in Jesus Christ. There's only one way to be saved, beloved. By believing the gospel message that Jesus Christ came into this world to offer his life for sinful people like you and me. That he died that bitter and shameful death on the cross, suffering God's wrath against our sins. That he rose again to grant us righteousness and life in him. We can't do anything to earn these blessings. All that God demands of us is that we receive Christ's righteousness in faith. Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to the Philippian jailer and to all those in his house. They believed the gospel. The jailer was filled with joy because he came to believe in God. He and his whole family. We also have the gospel preached to us. What's our response? Boys and girls, do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for all your sins? Young people, where are you seeking your life? Is it in this world and all that it offers to you? Or is it in Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Brothers and sisters, what is most important to you in your life? Who or what are you devoted to? Is your focus on yourself, on what you can get out of this life? Or is it on Jesus Christ and the righteousness and life you can find only in Him? The answer you give to this question is more important than anything else you'll ever do in life. Some of us may hold important positions in society or do things that are praiseworthy. We may get rich and be able to live a comfortable life or attain certain achievements that give great personal satisfaction. But all these things are worthless without God. And without Christ, for whatever we attain or achieve in this life is only temporary. Without God's grace in Christ, we're heading towards an eternity of suffering under God's punishment for our sins. If you want to be right with God and share in life everlasting, there's only one way to receive that. It's by confessing with your mouth Jesus is Lord. And believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you are saved. Confess Christ, beloved. Believe that he died to pay for your sins and rose to grant you life in him. It's by sharing in Christ's righteousness that we are restored to God and that we have everlasting life. Amen.
Let's respond to the gospel message by rising and singing Psalm 130 stanzas 2 and 4.